Let me be explicit. Right now, in this podcast, there's some explicit language. It's Monday, August 6, 2018, from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The president of Turkey, Recep Erdogan, has slapped back at the U.S. sanctioning of Turkish officials with a sanction of his own. First of all, the word sanction is the worst word in the English language. I get from context, you could usually understand that it means penalties, but it also, depending on context, means approval. So it is itself and the opposite of itself. There are other words like this, you know, oversight to offer oversight and uh, it was an oversight. But most of those words like fresh, don't be fresh versus funky fresh or explode as in the idea of interesting podcasts about murders have exploded. Most of those you can get from context, actually. I was purposefully vague with that explode one. But sanction and sanction really are confusing, even in context. Listen to this AP story that uh, crossed the wire the other day, and in my imagination, from 1972. White House spokeswoman Sarah Huckabee Sanders says the Trump administration will sanction Turkey's Minister of Justice and Minister of Interior. Now, normally, we'd know which side of uh, a human rights violation an administration would be on, right? We'd know what the issue was, which is that the uh, the Turks are going after this minister and there's uh, a back and forth. And so we'd understand that our government was on the right side and we'd know which sanction they meant. But it's Trump we're talking about. We have no idea what side of the issue he's going to choose. And he has sanctioned a lot of what Erdogan has done in the past, right? Like when Erdogan fights with the media and when Erdogan cracks the heads of protesters and just Erdogan's general strongman tendencies, it seems to me that Trump has sanctioned them all. But in this case, the administration actually means sanction to impose sanctions to give penalties. And by the administration, and this is very important, I mean Pompeo, not Trump. This is a Pompeo policy. How could you tell? Well, if it's an actual policy that goes into effect, then Trump's underling is executing the policy. But if it's a headline-generating tweet that totally breaks from established precedent and probably U.S. interest, then that's a Trump policy. Now, let me tell you what the Turks are doing in response. Turkey is calling on the U.S. to reverse its decision to sanction two Turkish government ministers over a detained pastor. And in reversing the sanction, Erdogan did this. He said, we will sanction, just as you have, we will sanction, we will impose sanctions on the U.S. minister's of justice and the interior. The U.S. does not have ministers, and we know what he meant by the minister of justice. That'd be Jeff Sessions, who doesn't invest in Turkey. But the minister of the interior, the secretary of the interior, is Ryan Zinke. Now, in Turkey, the interior minister, that's the equivalent of like a home secretary, someone who handles homeland security. But the interior minister in the United States handles, you know, fishing in Buffalo and stuff like that. Zinke's like, what I do? He also has no Turkish assets. It's as if the U.S. sanctioned the U.K.'s Chancellor of the Exchequer, and then the U.K., in response, imposed sanctions on Morgan Freeman. Why Morgan Freeman? We'll remember this part in the Shawshank Redemption. Kingman. Morgan Freeman used to play checkers. Exchequer. Look, it's stupid. But it's no stupider than Turkey, which is why I'm pretty excited about this moment in U.S. foreign affairs. I think it's the first time since January of 2017 that the U.S. is the second stupidest government in the room. 
And I find that kind of thrilling. On the show today, I will spiel about a Jay Sekulow appearance on This Week, This Week. But first, Maria Konnikova is back. It has been a while. And we are here to play Is That Bullshit? Premise, one pill makes you smarter and one pill makes you calm. And the one that mother gives you makes you know the capital of Tanzania. Dar es Salaam. Smart drugs. Are they bullshit? Smartphones, smart water, and smart popcorn. Okay, I'm going to have to uh, throw the red flag on that last one. But everything's supposed to be smart these days, said maybe the president. What about smart drugs? Is it possible? Could it be? Can a series of pharmaceutical cocktails boost the intellect in the way that a year studying Proust used to be able to? It was said. Here to play pharmacologist and ontologist to tell us the nature of being smart on drugs is Maria Konnikova. She is an author of so many things, including the forthcoming The Biggest Bluff about her foray into the world of poker, where you need to be smart and you're probably on drugs. Hello, Maria. How are you? Hey, Mike. How are you doing? I'm well. I always blow past that, but it would be smart not to. Maybe I haven't taken my drugs. Weirdly enough, drugs do so much, uh, but I think they're usually framed or posited as correcting a deficiency. Absolutely. But if the deficiency has something to do with paying attention or the intellect, why can't it be the case that it can focus you or, in fact, make you smarter? But I don't want to uh, make assumptions about what the people who are behind smart drugs say they can do. So that's my first question. What is the promise of smart drugs? Well, let's back up a second and say that... Most doctors aren't calling them smart drugs. That's that's <laughs> that more be smart. Yeah. No, that that's more of what the general public calls them because, for the most part, they haven't been developed for smart drug purposes. They've been developed for other things. They are pharmaceuticals. Right. They are designed to do something in an individual who is not healthy in some way, mm-hmm. right? And so, a lot of people have taken certain drugs that were designed to help non-healthy individuals. And they said, well, I'm healthy, but if it's supposed to make this person do X, Y, or Z, why can't it help me a million times more? Because I'm starting from a higher level. And so there's been a rise of these so-called smart drugs, which are actually drugs that were designed to treat things like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, Mm -hmm. things like Modafinil, which was designed to treat narcolepsy, so helps people stay awake. Mm-hmm. Donpizil, I think that's how you pronounce it. I have no idea. And that's for Alzheimer's. So people look at things that were designed for very specific functions yeah. and say, healthy me is going to have a million times better luck with this. Why don't I do it? Yeah, it, it would seem to me that some of these drugs, I don't know how they work, but some of these drugs, if they do in fact work to just address a deficiency, wouldn't really work if you don't have that deficiency. Like I'm thinking of the Alzheimer's drug. Yeah. And so I think that it's it can be beneficial to kind of look at different drugs mm-hmm. in separately yes. as opposed to as opposed to saying just smart drugs. Yeah. Do they work or not? But I do want to say that there was just an interesting survey that came, that came out of thousands and thousands of people. And it looked at 
the use of the overall use of smart drugs among people who didn't need them. And there's actually been a huge increase. So in 2005, it was 5% of the population said they had used them once in the last year. Right. Um, and in 2017, it was 14%. Right. So that's a huge increase. In the U.S., it went up from 20% in 2015 to 30%. The largest increase was in France. It was from 3 to 16. Uh-huh. And in the U.K., it went from 5 to 23%. People taking s- yeah. specifically who, who said, Ritalin? No, it just no, said just, just any cognitive enhancing, cognitive enhancing drink. drugs. Yeah, okay. exactly. So that's, that's kind of where we stand on overall usage. Um, And I think you're absolutely right that the most common one is ADHD drugs, which are both Ritalin and Adderall. Adderall. So let's just start with the data that exists for people who do need it. So what are the things that actually that you want? You want memory and concentration, right? And this was actually so these the original precursors of the drugs we use today were first developed in 1937 by this guy Charles Bradley who was a psychiatrist who noticed that um, when he gave kids benzedrine sulfate they became quieter and more studious and then he studied the mechanism how did this actually work and he saw that there was immediate increase of dopamine in the brain right. which helped concentration and then he said, "Oh my God, this can actually help kids who are just who need who need help." Right. So kids who get these drugs who are hyperactive become, in fact, more studious. Right. However, when you look at the data for do they become quote unquote smarter? Do they have academic performances that are better than they were before? And here the data become actually a lot murkier, even with kids who need them. So it ends up that there's not very good data for any long-term benefits of these drugs. And so it seems like academic achievement over the long term is not affected at all, mm. whether or not you get them. Um, so you don't actually become, quote unquote, smarter. All these drugs are just a way to get dopamine. To For the, the ADHD. The ADHD, yes. right. Why does that correlate? Do you know why that correlates with concentration? Dopamine helps a lot of different things. We often focus on the pleasure element of mm-hmm. it because that's a cool side effect. But I think as far as I understand, this is one of the reasons why it's working. We haven't talked so, about the other two drugs. Yes, so there are big differences with yeah. the Alzheimer's drugs. Yeah, so the yeah. Alzheimer's, there's almost no data on. Okay. So this one we can we can dismiss, <laughs> basically. The only study that was done on that um, in healthy individual yeah. um, that showed some effects was done on pilots and flight simulators yeah. and gave some pilots the drug. Others didn't get the drug, and they did like a flight simulator simulation. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not a pilot. And then 30 days. <laughs> but you're 30 a days. of English, and I believe <laughs> yes. simulation is the way to go. And then 30 days later, um, they were retested, and the ones who had received the drug performed better. They didn't show as much of a kind of decline in that skill. And so the only data we have is that it might help with skill learning, mm-hmm. um, with st- with kind of keeping that skill. But it was a really tiny study, and that's the only real data. Last big... Is modafinil, and that's used for narcolepsy. Okay. So narcolepsy is when you fall asleep mm-hmm. um, during the day or at times when you don't want to fall asleep. The the bottom line for modafinil is that it's a mixed bag with attention and memory. Some show that basically that the only effects that we see are on very, very specific tasks and very specific effects with no generalization. However, and this is actually true. This is really interesting. Um, this is something that is especially true in modafinil, but also then you realize that it's true in ADHD drugs as well, Ritalin and Adderall. It helps the most of peop- for people who are below average at whatever the skill is. So if you're someone who's already good at something, mm-hmm. you basically get zero effect. Mm-hmm. And if you're someone who's not very good, 
then you see a little bit of an effect. Hmm. And so you actually, you do see, um, I hate IQ. I think it's a terrible measure. I'm very anti-IQ tests. Are you, or are you just a low IQ individual? I'm probably a low IQ individual mm-hmm. who also hates IQ tests. Yeah. But then when you actually look at the data and start breaking down the data for ADHD drugs, it ends up that a lot of the effects have more benefits for people with lower IQs. Oh, okay. And not so much with people with higher IQs. So the kind of the better you are at something, the worse the drugs seem to be for you. So with modafinil, with skills, that's where you see that. And there is one study that actually kind of scared me a little bit. It looked at healthy individuals who were sleep deprived. So modafinil is actually being tested by the U.S. military, by yeah. a lot of areas that need to keep people awake for a long time and need to have them functioning for a long right, time. Right, right. Like your airline, pi- uh, sorry, like, fi- <laughs> like your fighter pilot. Fighter pilots, exactly. I hope of, not my airline pilot. But <laughs> in charge of defending the emoluments clause violations. Yes. That guy's got to be up yes. 24-7. Yes. Yeah. Um, so in this particular study, people were sleep deprived for four days yeah. and then a bunch of stuff was measured. And it l- seemed that the wakefulness was completely enhanced. So it was awesome. Like you, you felt alert, like you, you were awake. However, there were zero benefits to your executive function or Mm -hmm. your actual ability to pay attention, which if you think about it is actually really scary because you feel awake and you think you're doing well, but your executive function is actually declining and there's, there's no benefit for that, but you're awake. then if you look at the side effects of modafinil, I would basically never want to experiment with this. There's psychosis, depression, heart attacks. Yeah. And then I found kind of one one paper that actually just kind of summarizes all of them together. And I think it actually, it's a very good way of looking at it. Okay. It says that all of these benefits in healthy people seem to come at certain costs, right? So even the little benefits that we do see, there just do seem to be trade-offs. They look at it as gain-loss asymmetry, right? Which, which one are your gains better than your losses or are the losses too big? Yeah. So one is, for instance, working versus long-term memory. So it's those two things actually can come. They're, they're not mutually exclusive, obviously, but in any given moment, they're at odds. So if you are taking energy to your working memory, which is your ability to remember things right now, your long-term memory isn't working quite as well. You're not storing as many memories. And so it seems that like some of the ADHD drugs, your working memory might improve, but your long-term memory will suffer. And then you have stable versus flexible memories, both long-term and short-term. And so it seems that here your stable ones might actually be increased versus the flexible ones. Mm. And so you might not be able to update new information because you might the, the stuff that you learned while you were super focused yeah. is super stuck in there. Yeah. Um, and you might persist in bad habits that you acquired during those times. So And I think the, the most important one, at least in my mind, at least for the ADHD drugs, is the focus versus creativity trade-off. Yeah. So you're saying there's no such thing as a free lunch, and even if there were, it wouldn't come. There isn't. There isn't. Um, There was actually one quote that I found from this paper by this guy named Reagan. The history of the development of medicines tells us that there is no such thing as a safe drug, only a drug whose benefits outweigh its drawbacks. Holy shit. And I actually think... That is profound. That's profound, right? going to think it's about a, coffee in a whole nother way. Well, coffee is actually, like, if you want a cognitive enhancing drug, just drink some favorite. damn caffeine. Yeah. <laughs> but but that actually, it's a really good way of thinking about it. it. If it's a drug, it's not, there's no such thing as a 100% safe pill. Yeah. Everything, you just have to weigh the pros and the cons. And if we have drugs where even in people who are sick and need them, the pros might not outweigh the cons, 
then I don't know what we're really doing contemplating taking them as healthy people. So, as part of this exercise, this beloved exercise, we do ask, is that bullshit? So let us do it. Let us render a verdict. Taking smart drugs to make you smarter. Is that bullshit? Um, as of now, with the drugs that we have, yes, I think it's bullshit. Good to know. Maria Konnikova is uh, both perspicacious and sagacious. Thank you very much. Oh, also, let's plug uh, her latest project. You know, she did the Con Man book. That was The Confidence Game. And now she's working on The Biggest Bluff. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. Jay Sekulow gets less guff than Giuliani isn't as flavorful as Dershowitz. Also, we don't care if people on Jay Sekulow's island off the coast of Massachusetts are nice to Jay Sekulow or not, in the same way our heart goes out to Dershowitz. But you know, there's another thing, which is why I put Sekulow somewhere in between Giuliani and Dershowitz. And it's this, is that Dershowitz is a Jew and Giuliani is for Jesus, whereas Sekulow is a Jew for Jesus. So maybe he's had to, you know, temper himself or play both sides of the room, you know, to seem a little calmer. I'm still working on this theory. I actually think Sekulow's reputation as the more sensible of the lawyering team around Trump comes down to appearance. Giuliani and Dershowitz are both wild hair and spittle-lipped. I mean, Dershowitz isn't officially on the team, but that's how he's earning his money, right? Ty Cobb, remember that guy? He's still uh, auditioning for the barbershop quartet. Whereas Seculo looks like that respectable Muppet, the one who delivers the news. Here's a Muppet news flash. And now to Washington, D.C. for a direct call. Yeah, you know the guy. But yesterday on the ABC program This Week, as if trying to break free of the shackles of his reputation as the sensible one, Seculo unleashed as bad an analogy as there is. And yes, he did also admit that he'd misled George Stephanopoulos and the public on a previous ABC This Week appearance. But when he got around to it, what he was doing seemed to me to be intent on setting a new standard for head-slapping historical parallels. So he was asked, was it wrong for President Trump to pressure James Comey to drop the investigation into Trump's national security advisor, Michael Flynn. Here's Seculo's answer. Well, I, I want you to understand something. I mean, I know this sounds remarkable to, to, to a lot of people, but if, if there was investigations going on on Martin Luther King Jr., and do you think if President Kennedy would have gone to J. Edgar Hoover and said, hey, stop that, that that would have been an obstruction of justice claim? I mean, of course not. That would have been Article Two authority. No, no, I do not think it would be wrong were the president to steer the FBI director toward the path of doing something right, I might come to a different conclusion were the president to steer the FBI director toward the path of doing something wrong. That seems to be the important difference. James Comey dropping an investigation into a close associate of Trump is like J. Edgar Hoover dropping an investigation into MLK, like... Jay Sekulow's statement representing dropping the mic versus Jay Sekulow's statement representing dropping the ball. Hey man, something was dropped. It is the difference between a slick burn and a dumpster fire. JFK hypothetically intervening in the horrible harassment of an iconic civil rights leader. It's a lot different than Trump intervening 
in the proper, so proper that it resulted in a guilty plea in the proper investigation into disgraced Trump advisor, Michael Flynn. Now, I know JFK and MLK both have a K, but what MLK was doing also, we should note, didn't risk in any way taking down JFK, but the Flynn prosecution might very well lead to Trump. It was at least, we know this, this is indisputable, a prosecution of the man Trump thought should be trusted with the highest national security post in his government. So it was an embarrassment and a setback to Trump in a way that an MLK investigation has nothing to do with JFK. Let's look back. Let's look back to see if past presidents ever did interfere with the FBI. JFK, shamefully, I would argue, did let Hoover harass MLK, but other presidents did properly clash with their FBI directors. Truman clashed with J. Edgar Hoover, same guy. This is from David McCulloch's biography of Truman. Truman had little use for the FBI and its director, J. Edgar Hoover, in contrast to Franklin Roosevelt, who would like the way Hoover got results and greatly enjoyed the spicy secrets Hoover passed on to him about the private lives of important people. Truman considered Hoover and the FBI a direct threat to civil liberties. Quote, we want no Gestapo or secret police, Truman would write in his diary after only a month as president. FBI is tending in that direction. They're dabbling in sex life scandals and plain blackmail. This must stop. Presidents have frequently tangled with FBI directors. Jimmy Carter admonished one for excessive spending on his drapes. Clinton fired William Sessions. Those were ethical violations. But for the chief executive to direct a member of the executive to do his job better and to do that in the interest of the public is entirely unexceptional. It would seem that the big difference between the propriety of a president telling the FBI director to do something proper to help America versus a president telling an FBI director to do something improper to help the president doesn't hinge on the part where the president tells the FBI director to do something. It's all about the other stuff besides the basic fact that the president has told the FBI director to do something. So, Jay Sekulow, I would say that's not a very good analogy. Also, pair it as it was with your acknowledgement that one of the last times you were on the show, you lied. In fact, I have begun to think that the only benefit to continually invite the president's lawyers back on TV is to document the times they are lying, and then you get to ask them about it in their next appearance. Now, remember also that these are the guys whose job it is to decide whether to let the president to be interviewed by an actual prosecutor, a real guy with real authority, who, if you do lie, will probably do something other than say, well, that's all the time we have. Let's throw it to the panel. But of course, there is another benefit to the ongoing televising of the president's lawyers. It is an under-the-surface competition between them and among them as to who will say the most ridiculous thing in the defense of their client. And with that strong performance on Sunday, Jay Sekulow is back in the game, baby. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Daniel Schrader and Pierre Bieneme, who are both fans of the original Jew for Jesus. Jesus. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, is an adherent of a Jew for Jesus countergroup, Episcopalians for Esau. The gist. You know, Jews for Jesus, not exactly an oxymoron. It's not exactly redundant. It's more of an extreme inefficiency. 
If you want the Judaism, why you got to go the long way around through Jesus? If you want the Jesus, you're going to get a smattering of the Judaism anyway without having to go full Jew. It's sort of like buying 50 boxes of Cracker Jack just because you're a huge fan of temporary tattoos, but with less caramel in your teeth. Oomperu, deperu, dupru, and thanks for listening.